Yo, what's up? It's your boy Roy, and it's another episode of Sync Gems. Today, we have a special guest. Edwina Travis Chin is the VP of Content and Strategy at APM, which is one of the best sub-publishers in the States. Today, they have a staff of about 90 people, and she has been there from the very beginning of APM. So I am very privileged to have her on. I met her after a panel at PMC. I told her, hey, Edwina, would you like to be on the podcast and tell your story? She said, yeah, that would be a hell of a story to tell. And then she didn't exactly tell me when we would meet. But then in the end of the day, we met at the lobby. And she was like, let's do it now. Life is short. So I whipped out my iPhone and we just did it. It was great. Edwina talks about her story. She talks about how reading has helped her do her job. And she just has a fascinating outlook about know thyself, about a lot of other concepts. I just implore you to stay all the way and listen to it. It is in the lobby of a hotel, so you will have to um, listen in. But I'm telling you, it's going to be worth it. If y'all love the podcast, please make sure to share it with your homies, share it with your friends, share the content, and also leave us a five-star review. On Spotify, you can go ahead and leave it a five-star review. Um, and on Apple Podcast, you can go down on your mobile device and leave it a five-star rating with a review that tells me how much you love the podcast. And this really makes a, a, a difference for me. So without further ado. Edwina, Travis Chin. Yes. Um, let's talk about you. Okay. Because, uh, I don't know, like, it's... I've, I, I see a lot of people here and I hear about people a lot and to see a person and to hear about them are two different things. And you seem like a really cool human being. Well, thank you. Appreciate that. Um, I would love to hear about you, about your journey mm -hmm. and about all the things that led you to here and to your current role at APM Music. Um, yeah. Okay, well, it starts with me wanting to study either piano or ballet when I was five years old. And my parents said, you can take piano or ballet, you can't do both, so you have to choose one. So the world lost out on a great ballerina, but they ended up with a music director instead. So I studied piano all through school, sung in choirs, did the whole that sort of music thing, decided to be a music major in college with the idea of not to be a performer, necessarily, but I wanted to I wanted to be a music teacher. And so I did that. I graduated college with a degree in music, got a master's degree in education, and ended up teaching school for 10 years, um, basically doing music at a, at a private school, um, music for grades five through 12. Did everything from choir to beginning guitar, where I only had to be one lesson ahead of my students and uh, you know, helping with the school musicals and all that sort of thing. I had a friend who had a business doing music rights and clearance. And I used to help him type up stuff. You know? And through working with him, just typing up documents, I learned about 
music rights and music clearance. He was a lawyer, so he knew all the stuff and uh, was more than happy to explain things to me when I had questions about, well, how does this work? And at one point in time, he said, you know, it'd be great if you could come work for me. I'm like, no, 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 I'm teaching school. I wouldn't do this. Um, there was a point in time where the school was going to move, and I didn't want to have to move as far as the school was going to move. So I called him up and said, hey, you've always said you want me to come work for you. Does that offer still hold? He said, as a matter of fact, somebody is leaving at the end of this month. If you're still interested, I'd be happy to hire you. So school year ended. I took a week in between and then started working in music rights and clearances, which was really interesting because it exposed me to the business side of the music industry, and I learned just all sorts of things. The music industry was changing at that time. That's what, when, when, just like for a time? That would have been in the, oh, let's see, mid-80s. Okay. Early mid-80s. So... That was when the whole idea of shows going on video was just starting, sampling was just starting, so people were still trying to work out, you know, what do we need to do in order to license all this stuff? So it was really kind of exciting, and I've seen how uh, the terms and conditions under which, you know, that are included in contracts now is really different, but I also got a, a solid education in terms of how to research the copyright owners, um, what are the different parts of a license, just the whole licensing process. And over in the course of doing that work, I ended up calling companies like APM when we needed a piece of library music. Usually it might be um, the production company couldn't afford a regular, you know, the regular piece of music, a commercial piece of music, so they'd say, hey, can you find us something else that might work? Or the fee came in too high, or they just needed something that was more generic and so they didn't need to license a commercial piece of music. So I, I got acquainted particularly with APM. We had copies of the catalogs in our office. And I would go through the catalogs and call them up and say, hey, I notice in your catalog that you've got this string quartet stuff. Do you think any of that would be good for, for the project I'm working on? And of course they would say, sure. And I would go over, and this is in the day when you got um, music from a library. They gave it to you in the form of either vinyl or they'd run off a quarter-inch tape. So the offices I was working in weren't too far away from the APM offices, and I'd go over there and pick up quarter-inch tapes from them and ship those off to the producer. After doing that for a while, at one point in time, I was talking to someone over there, and they said, hey... Our music director, who moved out here from New York, has decided that she's not a California girl and she wants to move back to New York. Are you interested in coming in and interviewing? So I went, sure, why not? So I, I was very lucky in that I had what at that time was probably an unusual combination of skills. I had a music background. I had a clearance background. And I had at least minimal exposure to how, you know, what libraries had. And I was very lucky. I got hired for the job and became one of, at that point in time, two music directors at APM. And have been there now for 34 years. Wow. So. That's crazy. And you moved around, right? You, have you 
been doing one thing or have you... You know, Aikman was a much smaller company back then. Okay. So yes, I originally went in there to find music for people. That's what a music director does. But because I had the clearance background, yeah. I ended up working with our, our sales and licensing departments to go over all of our, not the contracts, that, you know, you leave to the lawyers, but in terms of the language that we used on our licenses, making working to make sure that it conformed more closely with what the language you would see on a commercial license. So, for instance, instead of just saying, yeah, you can use this piece of music for a corporate use, we modified our licenses so that we defined what a corporate use was. Little things like that. Nothing major, nothing that you had to go to law school for, but doing things to bring library music more on a par with how commercial music is licensed and to more clearly spell out what rights the client was entitled to when they licensed a piece of our music. Um, and then, because I always was interested in art, I got involved with helping to do things like some of our, our graphics and our, our design work for like, brochures and things like that wrote the company newsletter for a number of years where I'd write the content, I'd lay it out, I'd work with our printers, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I got to I got to wear a lot of hats in the early days of APM. It was smaller and things were much, much less complicated. Now, of course, we've got separate separate departments to handle all that stuff. But yeah, it was, it was fun. It was fun in those early days. And 90 people in the company, which is... Uh... Yeah, it, I mean, back then we had maybe, I don't even know if we had 12 people. We had two people in our accounting department. We had four salespeople, two yeah. music directors. You know. We had a shipping department because in those days we were shipping out CDs to clients. Um, so... It's really changed over, over the years. So, like, how did you... I mean, okay, it sounds like you had a typical kind of uh, Asian upbringing. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong. And how does that curiosity lead you to be... Like, it sounded like some sort of, like, a curiosity and a spontaneity, just like this interview, mm-hmm. has been leading you all the way to now. Would you be able to just pinpoint that and kind of elaborate? I, I don't know how much my Asian heritage factored into that other than that. It didn't factor into that. That's what I, oh, it didn't? <laughs> no. I mean, sorry, I misunderstood the question. Um, you know, other than that, you know, you were expected to, to study hard, do well. Um, you know, I, I was lucky I did not have the, the, the stereotypical dragon parents, but they were very, my mother was always incredibly supportive. That's amazing. And uh, there was a thing about, you know, taking piano lessons, of course. Um, and I, I guess I would say that I loved to read when I was a kid. I was a huge reader when I was a kid. And I think when you read, you, you imagine what's going on. You put the pictures in your head. And so it wasn't really that big a leap to having the pictures in my head to then, when I started working at APM, to say, all right, here's a picture, not in my head anymore, it's in the form of a script or a brief or whatever, so instead of what's the visual I'm going to attach to that, what's the music I'm going to attach to that, what's the mood, what's the feel, what's the overall texture that, you know, our client who's wanting to, to use our music, what's, what are they likely to be looking for? 
So I I don't know. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I mean, like it's it's and again, you're you're taking things around in such a creative way, and I feel like that's that's the beauty of things. Like people approach their uh, mastery or their craft with it, it. It's it's just like again, curiosity is something that really leads me in life. Um, and I feel like it leads a lot of people who are really good at what they do. It's because there's this innocence. And I feel like the analogy that you're giving is from reading to um, pairing music and, 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 and uh, image. Well, I'll give you one other little piece of that, which is I had mentioned before that I was a music major, but I didn't want to be a performance major. But the part about music that I liked the best, I still do, the thing that I love to do the best in music is a company. I love being an accompanist. I don't want to be the person up front and center, but I'm really happy to be the supporting player. And in a lot of ways, I came to the realization that when I'm finding a piece of music for somebody's project, whether it's you know a radio ad or a film or a TV show or whatever it might be, a documentary, my job is to be the accompanist or to help the music that we supply, to be the accompanist to whatever that voiceover or whatever that visual image is. And so I think my accompanying background is another one of those weird little pieces that you wouldn't necessarily think connects. But for me, I think that is one of the things that helps me connect, um, you know, what a client looks for in terms of finding music with how I do what I do. Mm. Yeah, it, it's it's so. I feel like it's all it's all of this this part of this industry is about like being in peace with being in the background and 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 having these skills and what you're like the skills that you're describing kind of describe um, kind of uh, bring me up like a supervisor you know where she, where a supervisor needs to let go of whatever their concept of the movie was and if this uh, scene needs a sad part of mu uh, music then that's what it's going to get regardless to if I wanted hip hop to be there mm -hmm. and yeah well I'm supposed to be a translator I'm supposed to translate the idea that the music supervisor or the director gives me mm. and translate that into a musical sound yes it's not about me it's not about my ego it's not about what I like it's what are they asking for and what can I provide that fulfills that particular request in the best way possible yeah. That's that's my job, I feel. Mm -hmm. And um, I tell the people this story all the time. Years ago, um, I happened to be at a, a thing where um, the director of Chariots of Fire, a man named David Putnam, was talking to... What is Chariots of Fire? Chariots of Fire was a, 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 a huge hit in the 80s. It was an Oscar-winning, Oscar Academy Award-winning film. Best picture, best everything. But, you know, there's a theme, Chariots of Fire the song now you're going to have to clear that oh, shit. <laughs> um, but um, please don't sue me please yeah, don't sue yeah. me is it universal anyway. <laughs> but anyways he was speaking about the film with the American Film Institute and he said that as a director his job was to make sure that everybody who, that he was working with that they were all making the same movie and that always stuck with me because I realized as a music director, as what in terms of what I do, my job is to make sure that the music I supply is to help make the same movie that the director or whoever's in charge of that project is making. 
Yeah. So that's that's my prime director. It's and 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 the the facet the great thing about it is just like it's it all comes down in my opinion to releasing from an expectation like that that's to me like all I hear from this is being able to connect with the fluidity of a of film or whatever um, and that's what I feel like people are failing to understand and that's why some sometimes it just doesn't work like that do you have any output on that do you sometimes watch movies and think like ah this doesn't work like are you sometimes does your head go there I think sometimes I think one of the things that's that jumps out at me when I watch you know TV movie whatever any kind of an audiovisual production um, is I'm very conscious of when the music is not being a supporting player you know because that's really I, I say that library music in particular is working music it's not not the star it's you know it's there I, I heard it described as music is the candle that warms the image on the, on the screen and and so when I hear music that's just it's like pay attention to me it's not doing its job you know because that's not what particularly library music unless it's specifically called but any score that's not the job the job is to make you know to make whatever's up on the screen look and, and, and feel good yeah. so um, I guess what I would say is that there are times when I'll hear something and I'll go, oh man, I wouldn't have chosen that. But on the other hand, I can sometimes appreciate why that piece of music was chosen. I just may not agree with the creative choice. Um, there are times when, for instance, I know I pitched on an ad, and I think I found the perfect piece of music. It's got the right vibe. It, had, it ticks off all the boxes in terms of what they asked for. And I'll see the ad on television. I'm like, what? They used that? What? But I'll look at it and say, it works, you know? So that's, you know, I have to respect other people's creative decisions. They may not be mine. Yeah. But I have to respect that creative decision. That, that being said, there are times when I think there's stuff that's like, yeah, that was, that didn't work. That that wasn't right. But again, um, I think one of the things about doing what I do is I'm not the person who makes the final decision. Right. I present. Here are what I think are your most are the most appropriate responses to the request that you've given me. I think that these choices I'm presenting you with all fit within the parameters of what you've asked me for. But I'm not the one making that final decision. I may have pieces that I think are better than others in this list that I've given you, but ultimately it's your decision. Do you feel like you've become better? Do you feel like your ratio has improved as the years came by? I have no idea. Because there's so much more volume, I, I would guess. You know, having more more choices is necessarily doesn't necessarily make your job easier um, there's there's a th there's a thing called the paradox of choice oh, when yeah. you have too many choices of like oh my god As Great opposed, book. you know but I think that the world of library music has expanded uh, so rapidly over the past 10 years I did an analysis one time where I looked at how many tracks in the APM library yeah. and I looked at how many had been released in the past 10 years or past I guess 15 years and then how many tracks had been released prior to that and the amount of music that has been released over the past say 10 or 15 years blows the water 
I mean, it's just, it's amazing how much more music has been released in the past 15 years than the first, say, 25. Um, yeah, the whole industry has just expanded at an exponential rate. So, on the one hand, it's good because you are able to, I mean, because of the catalogs that we're fortunate to represent, I'm able to find really obscure stuff that we would not have had in a library, say, 20 years ago. I mean, and that's exciting. That's exciting. But it does mean that because there is so much to choose from, sometimes it's, it's, it makes it harder to, to make a choice. Or, you know, say a music supervisor says, only send me five tracks, and I'm going through this one, but I've got 15 that are wonderful, and I have to distill it down to five. So that's, that makes it hard sometimes. Yeah, that's... Yeah, there, and I mean, like, and it also comes to what, what you were speaking about. It's kind of like, it's kind of like, I, I don't know, there's there's also so much competition with, within the composer uh, community, and, and that's, like, the podcast is basically geared towards composers to kind of, like, show them... Show, like show them the people like you and and show show what is what is happening as well like in places like APM where you 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 have right now how many labels in your catalog of uh, like tens if not really oh we've got we've got a ton yeah couldn't even tell you I mean yeah yeah lots a lot um and yeah and and it's just like it comes to tell how much vo more volume I mean composers need to make as well mm -hmm. um, I would say I wouldn't focus so much on volume at this point in time volume isn't the issue quality is the issue okay there is so much stuff out there that I think from, for composers and, and I can appreciate how difficult it is for composers but it's how do you distinguish yourself with your music and I'm sure you guys have heard this time and time again, but a lot of people say this, a lot of music supervisors, a lot of people who are, you know, run libraries, that rather than saying, I can do anything, and there are some people who truly can, but generally speaking, at this point in time, because there is so much competition and there are so many libraries, find out what it is that you do best. Find out what it is that resonates most with your particular set of talents. And how can you interpret that? How can you present it so that it is uniquely your own? Because when you're listening through, you know, 50 tracks of music, and they all have been given the same brief, what is it that's going to help you stand out? You know, it's going to be the quality of your writing, it's going to be the quality of your production, and it's going to be, you know, what's your interpretation of a happy indie piece? You know, how do you make that distinctive? Is it, is it by the fact that you're known for writing really cool melodies? Are you able to combine both organic, acoustic, and electronic elements in a really unique way? Are, is your strength um, your harmonic structures? Um, maybe it's that you like to incorporate rhythm in an interesting way. It's, it's kind of that old thing of know thyself. Mm, and, wow, like you've presented a few concepts I, I love and I, I also read, I read a lot. Um, 
and I love The Paradox of Choice. It's a great book, and I, I always go. Oh, go, somebody go. else has read it. Oh, of course, I go back to it for for references and for to be humble sometimes because, um, I mean, me living in Bali, uh, sometimes like The Paradox of Choice is so it's so real because there's so many options, um, especially because it's. It's a very cheap place to live in, so it's like, what am I gonna do today? Am I gonna go to the beach? Am I gonna go to the market? A lot of like, a lot of little, even these little things can rip out from like the the, the decision fatigue. Like it, it shows up a lot. Anyway, um, I feel like what you're saying about uh, um, about being understanding one's one's specialty and one's uh, one's uh, craft is so weird to me because it's so important like you know like in the old days like you if you were a carpenter you were a carpenter that's what you were known for if you are today it's like everything's kind of hybrid but you got to choose that's not to say that as a composer in this day and age you should not have a lot of skills in your toolbox that's not what I'm talking about I'm talking about strictly the creative process you know that you need to know you need to know your strengths and be able to amplify that. But you need to have a lot more skills in your toolbox. You need to know how, you know, so much stuff is done by a person by themselves, working with their own equipment, doing their own mixing and mastering and all that kind of stuff. And you need to be really solid on that these days. That wasn't necessarily a requirement 30 years ago, where you were working with a team of people, you'd hire all these musicians, you had an engineer in a sound booth who recorded stuff, and you had somebody else, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yes, there are still productions that are done that way, but there are a lot more productions that aren't produced in that way, and it's the composer's responsibility to be able to pull all that together, which wasn't the case before. So you have to be solid on the skills and understand the the technological aspects of everything. You know, and, and I'm always amazed that there are so many composers who have those multiple skill sets. Um, I know somebody who is, um, he's an editor, that's what, he, that's, that's what pays the bills. But he's also, I mean, I know a lot of people who are editors and who started out as editors, but they were also musicians. And what was interesting is that because they were editors, they learned what worked for the kinds of projects that would use music. And we had a guy who came to us at one years and years ago who had been an editor, and he said, hey, I've, and I heard some of his stuff. I was like, okay, it's, it's okay, you know, it's fine. And then he said, well, I've got this idea for a very specialized catalog. And he played it for us, and I'm like, is this the same person? Mm. And it was because he had he had identified a niche, he identified a need, and because he'd been editing in that world, he then understood what all the all the parameters were and was able to take that skill set both as a composer and from his background as an, as an editor and create what what at that time what became a very, very successful library. So it's that combination of, you know, identifying what's needed having the tools to be able to execute that, and then having the creative vision to be able to marry all those things together. Wow, that's, that is straight up amazing. Yeah. I feel like, uh, yeah, that's where any and every composer wants to be. And that's the, I feel like, 
the importance of honing, honing, knowing thyself and honing thy craft as well. Yeah. Um, just to understand, because sometimes it's also not where you think it is, right? Like that, just like you were talking with the composer. Um, uh, just like, you know, I've, I've tried uh, being a, a producer for so long, me, myself, my personal story. And then people were like, are these your vocals? I'm like, yes. I want these vocals. And I'm like, okay, take them. And I still, it's like you were talking when the, the hero's journey, and, and, you know, like the, the, the concept by Joseph Campbell, mm -hmm. where first of all, it's like uh, uh, the, the hero gets the call to action. He says no usually. Um, and then at some point, uh, after maybe a few nudges, he realizes, well, if I don't do it, then who will kind of mm -hmm. thing. There's a need and I can feel that need. And that's where the hero becomes a hero, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and, and he starts getting into all the hustle of becoming the Spider-Man, the Superman, the, the whoever. Mm -hmm. That's why I love Marvel. Like, I, it, it's a repetitive thing, right? It's, a, it's just a, a, a thing that works, the hero's journey. Um, but this is what it is and then like for me uh, suddenly more and more people were like I don't know your, your production's alright but I, what are these vocals and, and then like as I got my productions up to par my production up to par the vocals were solid already so I like laid them here laid them here laid them here laid them here got a bunch of stuff with APM got a bunch of placements with APM and that was my for me that was the thing that guided mm -hmm. me But I think you bring up an important thing. It's a journey. Yeah. It's a journey. It's 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 building blocks. It's not like bam, all of a sudden there's this, there's not this magic formula that if I do this, this and this all at once then I should automatically have hit the success button. It, it took me 20 years. Way. Yeah, it took me 20 years so. to find that. So I I hear you completely. Um and had I don't know like the the I feel like there is a stage where, you know, like people see learn fast or things, but there are things that just come with growth and with age and with uh, uh, just becoming more mature and knowing thyself, mm -hmm. which is, I think, how I, I'll call this actually this episode, because <laughs> I feel like, you know, like to, to, um, to do what you're doing, one needs to know thyself, one needs to let go of a lot of ego, of performance, like I need to be in the front, I need to be this, I need to be that. Um, And I love that. Like, I, I really appreciate, I, I love surrounding myself with that calming, soothing energy of, of, yeah, of I don't need to be someone. I'm great. Does that make sense? Well, I think it's more, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but I think if you are, recognize, this is going to sound, again, I don't mean this to sound negative, but... It is useful to have an appreciation of what your potential um, limitations are. And if that's something you still want to do, then what do you need to do to overcome that limitation? So for instance, I'm a classically trained pianist. So, you know, you put, you put the notes in front of me, no problem. I can, I can read music, I can sight read, used to be able to sight read reasonably well, but I am not a jazz pianist. That, that wasn't what I grew up with. It's, I, under, I mean, I can appreciate it. I appreciate somebody who can sit there and improvise and do all that stuff. But I've never really made the effort to try to become a jazz pianist. Can I sort of fake? I can read chord charts and that kind of stuff. But 
you don't want to put me up there and say, and featuring Edwina Travis Chin, world famous jazz pianist. That's not going to, we wouldn't even want to say Edwina Travis Chin, world famous classical pianist, because, you know, I was going to be the accompanist anyways. But, so I know that about myself, that, that that's not my strong point to do that. Could I do something about that? Heck yeah. I could, I could make a concerted effort to say, I'm going to teach myself the skills and learn the scales and the techniques and everything to become a jazz pianist. Do I want it badly enough to do it? No. So what do I need to do? If I accept the fact that my thing is classical piano and I want to be successful with that, then it's what do I need to do to be a good, solid classical pianist. Mm. So it's not saying that you can't do it when you accept your limitations, you know. In other words, I don't say to myself, oh, I could never become a classic, uh, jazz pianist. It's possible, but it's going to take a lot of work on my part. Do I want to invest the energy into that? You know, maybe I want to invest the energy just for my own enjoyment, which is different than saying I want this to be my vocation. But I know I have this other skill set. You know, I know I can I can do the classical piano thing. I know I can do the accompanying thing. So do I want to focus my energy on seeing how far I can take that? Sort of like you with the vocals. You know, you were doing the vocals and it became apparent that, okay, you had an aptitude for that. People are asking, let me, let me continue to really work on that, make that successful. In the meantime, you did what I would need to do with jazz piano. You said, okay, let me start to hone and improve and work on those other skills. And then you come at that magic intersection where the skills, the toolbox that we were talking about, meets, you know, the the ability and the talent and did the you, creative part. Did you have a lot of mentorship on that on that journey up to, to to APM? Did you have any I didn't even know that something like library music existed. I mean I'm always amazed that nowadays people can go to college and get a degree in music supervision. I mean not all colleges, colleges that have a solid music program. Or, you know, arts management, all these different things. Those did not exist when I was going up through school. And so in terms of mentors, I think we're, my mentors would be the people that I worked with in the early stages of my career, you know, who were able to, you know, sort of say, here's how the business works. Like the lawyer friend of mine who hired me to do music rights and clearance. That, he was a mentor in that I learned a lot about music rights and clearance and I've been able to apply that ever since to my, you know, the rest of my career. In terms of the, the music part of it, you know, people that I worked with in the music at, at the music library at APM when I started who said, here's how the library business works. Here's how libraries are organized. Here are, here are the terms and, and words that our clients use when they ask for music. So they guided and helped me to understand this particular music industry, part of the music industry, and its its unique vocabulary. And so, you know, those people would definitely, I would consider being my mentors. Um, and then the rest of it is partly hyperactive imagination, you know, that I've said this, this isn't anything new because I say this pretty much anytime somebody asks me the question about it, but when we get new albums in and I listen to them, it, I, I literally do think, what kind of project could I put this on? And we used to do, I used to be, I used to oversee um, 
monthly meetings in the office where our salespeople would say, hey, here's the new batch of CDs that were coming up, you know, that we're releasing this month. I'd put something on, and I would make up a voiceover to go with it on the spot. So you'd get this piece of music, and it's kind of orchestral, and it's got strings and a little brass, and it's kind of triumphant sounding, and I'd say, here, at the 10th hole on the such-and-such, -such, you know, fairway, so-and-so is coming, you know, you could make, and again, it's that hyperactive imagination. That's the how reading, golf commentary the, sounds, by you know, the way, to, uh, to yeah. anyone who doesn't well, know. <laughs> PGA Tour Productions is one of our clients, and so I would go down there, and I would, I would say, and here's some new music that we've got for you guys, and I would do that in front of them, and That's I'd say, amazing. major caveat, I don't play golf, so, you know, you can't bust me if I'm using the wrong terms. But it was kind of a fun thing for me to do. But it also, again, reinforced that idea that the music was there to support whatever presentation it was going along with. And it was a fun thing for me. And I think, again, when I say hyperactive imagination, it's that you're not listening to it just because it's music. You're listening to it because you know it's there to fulfill a function. Ooh, goosebumps. I mean, like, yeah. The, uh, um yeah, I'm just I'm just speaking from my own uh, personal journey, and sometimes there's this diva that that creeps in that's like, oh, you gotta be the center of attention, and it's uh, it's like, uh, and and it's all right, it's it's coming and going, so I feel like uh, it's it's coming to I'm coming to terms with it, but it's um, it's so true, like what you're saying, it's um, I I had a question that I really wanted to ask you: Is there like let's say there is a like a group or a an, an artist or something that uh, producer or composer that you really like something they've done okay you, you you can let's say for the PGA tour do you search for more of their stuff in your catalog um, in order to fit it to more stuff or I, is it... I guess the best way I would answer that question and it goes back to something we said earlier about you know who's Whose vision are you trying to help fulfill? Mm. It's not what I like for PGA Tour Productions. Yeah. It's what has PGA Tour Production demonstrated that they like. Yeah. Um, it's so funny because people say, well, what's your favorite piece in the library? And I, I had a co-worker. She was one of our other music directors. And she actually had been one of my mentors. And whenever anybody asked her that question, she would say, the piece that worked for the last project I, I just did. Mm. You know? Because certainly there are pieces in the library that I like as as music. Yeah. I love them as pieces of music. They aren't necessarily sync friendly. You know, they don't really work well with a lot of different kinds of visual images or whatever. I mean, there are projects that they could work on, but it's it's they're not like the, that all-purpose workhorse. But there are some pieces that, just as a piece of writing, I think are phenomenal. On the other hand, there are other pieces that from a standpoint of, is it something I would want to listen to at home endlessly? No. I, I would, you know, if I had to listen to it more than five times, I'm, I, I might, you know, start to twitch. But as a piece of library music, in terms of what that music needs to do to support a narrative, man, that's my favorite piece of music because I can, I can lay that piece of music on just about almost all kinds of visual images and it works because it's 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 done what it needs to do in terms of supporting narrative and visual image so um, I don't know if that answered the question yeah I mean it's uh, uh, yeah it's just uh, it's just it's a, it, it brings in a lot of uh, 
I feel like that's why uh, for, for me sometimes as somebody who wanted to be an artist when they were growing up, coming up, I guess, it's, it, it just brings that ego part where it's like, I want to be in the center of something, but it doesn't necessarily fit. Like, it doesn't necessarily fit scenes or something like that. So I feel like that will definitely get me back to the drawing board, even a few hundred tracks into to doing production music. And it's... Uh, but see, the yeah. great thing is you can do your own art and production music. Right. It's just, it, it, it gets presented in a different context. Yes. You know, the context for production music is you know that it's job, and it is, it, that is, it's job is to support a visual image or an audio narration. Yeah. That's the job of it. When you're creating stuff for yourself, the job there is where you'd be able to express yourself. Right. Two different job descriptions. That's a hundred percent. I mean, like, uh, uh, yeah, it's. I, I think they can intersect, especially mm -hmm. if it's a, uh, if you're talking about again, like uh, with vocals, especially like if you're talking about more global things or mm -hmm. like the hero's journey or uh, growth or winning or these mm -hmm. things that these concepts that fit mm -hmm. with, uh, with with picture a lot mm -hmm. of times. Uh, yeah, and and I feel like the the takeaway for me is for artists, you know, if you have uh, like, if you like doing vocals like I do, and you also like hip hop like I do, mm -hmm. then you can merge these places, but always remember what it's for, kind of thing, mm -hmm. as opposed to just doing it for myself, which is like, it, it it's it's a really interesting, it's all, always a really interesting thing to navigate. Yeah, and there's no right or wrong answer. 100%. And so, Yes, you may be doing something with the idea that it is for a library and it's with the ultimate goal of getting a placement, yeah. but it still has to be genuine. It still has to be something that comes from your personal sense of creativity. Yeah. Um, more and more, the word that I hear clients throw out to us is authenticity. And I'm sure you've heard that. I mean, it comes up all the time. And it might be authenticity in terms of somebody who really knows what style they're working on. You do not want me writing a hip-hop track, okay? So it wouldn't be authentic if it came from me, you know? But coming from you, it would. Mm. You know, that's, that's your thing that you do. So, you know, authenticity, both in terms of, of knowing what that style is and really embodying it, authenticity in terms of the emotion that you're wanting to express, and, you know, authenticity just in terms of, you know, are you using the appropriate instruments? Are you using, you know, you're not going to, well, you could, it would be really interesting. What if you used an opera singer on a hip-hop piece, you know? But that would be a creative decision yeah. that you did deliberately. Yeah. As opposed to, oh, I have this friend who sings, you know. Um, but, yeah. Authenticity also, it's, it's uh, yeah, it, the, the reason I, I, the reason I cringed a little bit when I heard the word authenticity is because, like, it's a word that's kind of been bastardized. Yeah, and, it has. And, and, Overused. Uh, but, but, like, we understand what it means. You, your stuff needs to make me feel a certain way, regardless of if it's something I would listen to. Maybe, maybe the other word, instead of often being authentic, um, Maybe it's a matter of coming up with a, a better word for that. You know, it has to be relevant, mm. and it has to be 
Gosh, English is such a limiting language sometimes. Mm. There's got to be another word. You got uh, you, you have to learn Indonesian. You understand oh, okay. how you understand how limited you are, really. Oh, <laughs> believe me, I, I, I you know you read about other languages all the time, and, and you know when you hear that what the the uh, you know Inuits have like 50 words for snow. Wow. You know, I mean, there's there's something. I didn't know. That. I, I read something like it might not be 50, but it's it's like it's not just snow. They have a different word that describes the particular quality mm. and mm. whatever of, of snow because that's their universe is, is snow. So. Yeah. I mean, we're going off it's on like a, yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, the podcast always goes on these tangents, <laughs> so don't you worry. We go into very deep stuff. Um, but um, the the word I use, mm -hmm. I choose to use, um, is is real. Hmm. Um, and because, like, especially when when I uh, when I lived in New York, and uh, and and someone would tell me I'm real. They would mean it in such a genuine way. It's not like a meditation class where you're like, connect to your authentic, uh, authentic self. Yeah, like, right. oh, uh, like yeah. it's, it hurts so bad. Like it, it used to be nice, but um, I feel like realness um, is something that um, that is hard. Like it's it's not it, it's not everywhere. Mm -hmm. Like genuinity, yeah. Like so, when when somebody really does something, they and they mean it. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like that's from my angle. That's a lot of what uh, um, uh, libraries are currently gravitating towards. Um, and I would assume AP, APM yeah. as well. Well, I mean, certainly with regards to instrumentation, um, you know, it's possible to do everything out of the box nowadays. Yeah. And. There's a reason for that. I mean, you can, if you've got somebody who's really skilled at using those tools, it's almost indistinguishable from the real instrument. Almost what? Almost indistinguishable yeah. from the real, like, say, you you know, using yeah. string samples. Yeah, yeah. But there is an indefinable something that, if you think about it, clues you into the fact that that's not really a guy standing there with a violin playing. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, real music, I think there is a movement towards using more actual real acoustic instruments as opposed to relying so much on, on the electronic versions. That said, people are, aren't always requiring that everything be an actual real acoustic instrument because the electronics bring an additional layer of texture and interest and color, sound color, to a composition that an actual acoustic instrument could never accomplish. Right. So, you know, it's like, now you've got this whole new set of tools to create sounds and colors and feelings that didn't exist, say, 60 years ago. I mean, they did, but not, not, they weren't widely available, you know? So, I don't know, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to just say, well, where are we and where are we going? And um, I think that's what keeps, keeps keeps this interesting. You know, there's always something coming up where somebody's done a different take on something. It's like, wow, how did they come up with that idea? Why did they decide to marry this sound with that sound and come up with something that is unique and different? Because, um, you know, that's the challenge of library music, is to basically tell the same story 
and when I say tell the same story, I mean, again, because music is helping to tell that story, you're always going to want to have music for a romantic scene, music for a horror scene, for a dramatic chase, whatever. Yeah. But as music itself evolves, you find different ways to illustrate that with music. And so that's the part that I find interesting. You listen to how people scored horror movies in the 50s, way different than the way they score horror movies now, you know? It doesn't make one better than the other, you know? It's just a different way of expressing that same emotion or evoking that same emotion, I should say. Yeah, expressing and yeah, yeah, it's it's going somewhere. I, I don't know where it is, but that that'll have to wait for another yeah. time. Uh, I gotta ask you mm-hmm. before we head out. Okay. What um, what are you grateful for? What am I grateful for? Wow, a lot of things. When I, you you know, if I have to sit and actually express that, I'm grateful for life in general. I am grateful for the fact that I have been afforded the opportunity to explore um, explore my own ability to be creative. I'm grateful for the ability to have worked with a lot of really interesting people and be involved in a lot of interesting projects. Um, I know this is going to sound trite, but I'm grateful to have been given the opportunity to work in something where, I mean, it's, it's a job, it's work, you know, let's not just, it's not like I'm playing, but I'm grateful for that, that I have a job where I'm allowed to be creative, work with people, share ideas, and I get paid for it. And whenever I get discouraged, and I joke about this, but I think, you know, I could be doing something else a lot more, I mean, it's not that the job, there's, there's, stress and there's all sorts of things and sometimes it's really long hours but it's better than some other things I could be doing you know so I guess I'm grateful for having had the opportunity to work in this industry and work with some really interesting and and, and really extraordinary people that's amazing Edwin and well thanks so much for coming on well, thank you for Appreciate even you. thinking of me and inviting me I mean, it's sort of out of the blue because I don't normally you know People don't come up to you and say, hey, tell me about yourself. <laughs> so, but thanks for you know, being receptive to all, the, all my blatherings on. Yeah, you're amazing.